the zone we're looking for, the genius zone, is when you're doing what you most love to do in a way that empowers other people to do what they most love to do. Sure. That's the genius zone. And I've been fortunate to live there for a long time. And I can tell you, there's nothing more delicious than I've seen on planet Earth to live a life where you're always inspiring and empowering people to open up to their genius. I mean, that's life at its best. If you're in the 50% of the workforce who is self-evaluated during the pandemic and you know that you're in a job that you're good at, that meets your financial needs, but is also leaving you spiritually and creatively bankrupt, this week's interview on the Life Amplified podcast could be the first step to reinventing your life. I talked to New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Gay Hendricks. He's going to help us move away from the mundane nine to five and live a life that is truly lit up in the genius zone. We'll explain what that means and tell you how to get there coming up. Thanks for coming back. What is an amplified life? It's having amplified relationships with people who support and encourage you to be your best. It's having amplified energy to conquer the challenges of the day. And it's having an amplified career, one that's meaningful to you, the world, and your bank account. I'm Dan Mason, Life Reinvention Coach, helping you discover your calling and create an amplified life on your terms. This is the Life Amplified Podcast. I remember being stuck in the corner office in 2010, making a great living in a career where I was also deeply unfulfilled. I felt like I wasn't really living up to my own potential. And even though I was in a career that allegedly was creative, I was misdirecting my creativity in a way that helped other people reach their goals financially, while not really authentically expressing the highest version of who I am to the world. And that was a really dark place to be. And like so many people that I meet now in my coaching practice, I had a laundry list of reasons why I should stay stuck. You know, I blamed the economy. I tried to live in a state of pseudo gratitude where I pretended to be grateful for what I had, but it was really that I was afraid to ask for more in my life. And when all else failed, I blamed the relationship that I was in because I was, you know, supporting my ex and her daughter at that point. So I didn't feel like I could walk away from the six-figure salary. But here's the thing that I've learned in life. The universe is going to win. And to some degree, you want the universe to win. It created you with a gift, with a divine purpose to share with the world. And when you're not consciously choosing to pursue that path, generally the circumstances of your life will come crashing down and you will be forced to move into that path. Now, the choice is up to you. You can get there through pain or you can get there from a state of joy and inspiration. But our guest this week on the Life Amplified podcast is going to help you take control of your life and initiate this new momentum so that you can take control of your life and truly live in alignment with the highest expression of who you are. Gay Hendricks, PhD, has served for more than 40 years as one of the major contributors to the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind therapies. He's a New York Times bestselling author, and his books include Conscious Loving and The Big Leap, which if you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you have heard me talk about that book so often. His new book is called The Genius Zone, 
the breakthrough process to end negative thinking and live in true creativity. Awesome conversation uh, that we had this week. Some of the topics that we're going to cover are the one question that will help you fast track to discovering your own zone of genius. We'll talk about how to know when you've fallen off track and what you can do to bounce back both in the boardroom and in the bedroom. We'll talk about the addiction to control and how it can open the doorway to the trauma that we need to heal. He's going to tell us about the difference between original creativity and true creativity and how knowing that difference is essential to finding your own zone of genius. We'll talk about wooing our creativity the way that we would woo a romantic partner and why our creativity won't be found through external consumption. He's also going to walk us through a concept that he first shared in his book, The Big Leap, but we're going to talk about the four zones that we live in in our career and help you identify where you're currently stuck and how to get into your zone of genius. Uh, The new book is available June 29th. You can pre-order it at the link in the show notes. And if you love what you're hearing this week, don't forget to give us a follow on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. And feel free to share this with a friend. If you are not currently creatively stuck, I guarantee you know somebody in your life who is frustrated. So screenshot the podcast, upload it to Instagram and Twitter. Be sure to tag me at CSC Dan Mason. And you can tag Gay Hendricks at Hendricks, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S dot gay on Instagram. Let us know your takeaways and your breakthroughs. We're getting you into your zone of genius this week on the Life Amplified podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Gay Hendricks, welcome to Life Amplified. It is an honor. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to be here. You know, we were chatting a little bit before we press record, but The Big Leap, one of my definite top seven or eight self-help books of all time uh, really made a big impact on me. And it's something that I've recommended to so many clients. And June 29th, you're releasing the follow-up, which really goes deeper into one of the concepts that you discuss, which is about finding your zone of genius. So hopefully today we'll leave with some clarity on how people can do that. But I guess the first question I wanted to ask you, you you open up in the book with really the million dollar question. I think everybody has asked themselves this at some point. How can I spend the majority of my time doing what I most love to do while making my greatest contribution to the world? Simple question to say out loud. It can take a lifetime for people to find an answer and some never do. Why is it so difficult to bridge that gap and to find our genius zone? Well, I think from the beginning of life, we're bombarded with a lot of messages that take us away from our genius, not closer to our genius, Uh, because, you know, our parents want us to fit in in society and be able to have good jobs and all of those kinds of things. And so oftentimes the quirkier people who have the stranger ideas aren't rewarded very much and are often uh, punished for that. And if you think about geniuses throughout history, uh, some of them have gotten serious trouble as in executed for their genius and for standing up for very obvious things now, like how the sun and the universe works and astronomy and those kinds of things. So from the very beginning, I think uh, genius has had a kind of a bad rap in the sense that 
geniuses always lived on the outskirts of town where they were kind of left to themselves and they were the shaman or they were the witch uh, or the herbalist. So I think from the beginning, there's been a tendency to think of genius as something other than ourselves. But what I'm here for is to get everybody to see that you are organically born with genius and your job, my job is to bring it forth in the world rather than a lot of times we think of education as putting stuff in. And, you know, to a certain extent, you're putting in information. But in the original meaning of the word education in Latin, educare, which means to lead out from yourself, to bring Mm -hmm. forth from yourself. And what I'm talking about is that kind of learning where you really begin to consciously invite forth your genius by asking yourself, here's a super practical tip. Just begin by asking yourself that question that I posed later in the big leap and also in the new book, which is, hmm, what do I most love to do? That's the quick ticket to finding where your genius lies. And even if you look back through to your childhood, you'll often find there are echoes of it way back there. You know, like, I think I tell a story in the book about how when I was five years old, I got a tricycle, but it was raining outside and I couldn't ride it. So my grandmother let me ride around her big living room. And one of the first things I did was get a cardboard box, a big box, and put it in the corner of the room. And that was my office. And I would commute on my tricycle to the office. And in my office, I would sit in my cardboard box and I would entertain people's problems. What, that, that's what I was there for. I, you know, I don't want to talk to you about your physical problems. That's for a regular doctor. But I'm the kind of doctor that talks about other kind of problems. Well, nobody ever took me up on it in my family. They thought it was funny, though, and they still 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 tell stories about it. But, you know, there was something about that. So if you look back into those kinds of things throughout your life, you'll often get hints about what your genius is. Like to this day, nothing in the world can excite me more than the look on somebody's face when they have a breakthrough, when they drop some bit of negative thinking, like a limiting belief or an upper limit problem, and they break through to that new level. You know, they're in a new zone then. And I call that the genius zone. I mean, I live on a steady diet of that, but I never get tired of it. I love that look of awakening that happens. And that's what I intend to do with the genius zone, because what it is really, it's written like a conversation with me in my office. And so you can get that same effect out of the book and the audio book. So if you had to define clearly, because again, most people are going to listen to this podcast and they think genius zone and they think Elon Musk, like I've got to go colonize Mars, right? Or they're thinking of Jeff Bezos. But really when we're talking about genius, it's unique to each person, right? So if we had to define it, how would you just specifically clearly define the genius zone for people? And is it something that even when we discover our genius, that we still have to take time and invest time to cultivate it? Yes. And let me start with the the first thing here. The zone we're looking for, the genius zone, is when you're doing what you most love to do in a way that empowers other people to do what they most love to do. That's the genius zone. And I've been fortunate to live there for a long time. And I can tell you, 
there's nothing more delicious than I've seen on planet Earth to live a life where you're always inspiring and empowering people to open up to their genius. I mean, that's life at its best. And my wife and I have been doing that now for the last 40 years. And it makes relationships thrive too. I'm still just blown away after 40 years that I get to be married to Katie Hendricks. And so I think genius is good for the soul and it's good for relationships. And it's up to us to get it started by asking some of these big questions like, what do I love to do? And what do I love to do that inspires other people to do what they love to do? And in the book, you talk about this initial vision for your life, that you wanted to write the next great American novel, that you (laughs) were going to be a writer, you were going to be a novelist, yet through a series of life circumstances and the things that happened to us generally in the front half of our life, you got knocked off that course. You know, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you found yourself giving up a journalism job, shelving the novel and moving into becoming a counselor. And I know that that all brought you back full circle to writing and inspiring people now, maybe in a different way than you imagined. But can you talk about that journey? Because I think so many people are like, well, you look, I tried that when I was in my 20s, but now I've got kids and I got these mouths to feed. I don't have time for this. We can fall into so many excuses and we never go back and revisit that part of ourselves. I have a very electric memory of the moment where that all happened. I had just discovered the field of counseling. I'd kind of fallen into it by accident. One of my best friends was taking the program and I went and sat in on one of his classes and immediately I was hooked because I saw real people sharing real things and making life decisions. And that was the stuff I, I wanted to write novels about. But the way I said, wait a minute, why would I want to write a novel about it when I can do it up close and be part of it? And then I had this one electrifying moment where one of my professors, Dwight Webb, oh, blessings to him, one of the greatest human beings I've ever met, a professor at the University of New Hampshire, I was walking down the hall to him and I presented this quandary to him. I said, I love writing and I wa- I've always wanted to write novels. And yet I'm so in love with this new field. Which one should I do? <laughs> he said what any great counselor would say, he'd say, hey, why don't you do both? Find a way to yeah. use your creative writing talents to describe the process of counseling. And I remember just, oh, you know, it was a moment of, of genuine unity where two things came together in one place. And the first thing I did was my master's thesis became a collection of poems about the counseling process. I think there were 37 of them that I wrote that were, you know, a good sized thicket. So they let me do a creative thesis that got me started. And I wrote three poems. I sent them to the counseling journal at the time, the major counseling journal, a journal of American Journal of Counseling. He accepted the poems. They'd never put poems in the counseling journal before, but he put them in there. That made a great life leap possible because on the other end of the country, John Crumboltz and Carl Thorson, the two professors at Stanford, saw them and said, wow, isn't that where Dwight Webb teaches? He was one of their graduates from way, way, way back. And they said, yeah, well, then I applied to Stanford to get in for my PhD. And so I made Mm. that leap into there. And that was life changing. But it all started with that one little conversation I can see with Dwight Webb in 1968 or so. 
So two things that I'm hearing there, that oftentimes the detour is actually the path and we don't realize it. And that's totally true when I think back on my journey out of corporate into this career. So saying yes to the detour and understanding that it will all make sense later. Is that fair to say? Yes. And while you're in the middle of it, it may make no sense at all. Yeah. (laughs) Because some of my path journeys looked like I was going down a really wrong alley, a bumpy one at that. You know, I always compare successful life living to the autopilot on an airplane. And that is that you take off in LA and you're heading for Honolulu. And it's always drifting off and recorrecting thousands of times. It gets it wrong and then recorrects and gets it right for a split second. Then it's drifting the other way and gets it wrong and it recorrects. So it gets all the way to Honolulu by being wrong most of the time because it's willing to recorrect. And if I could insert new one new gene into humanity right now, it would be an openness to learning gene. I've had the pleasure at this stage of my career to work with some of the greatest people on earth, you know, people that have, you know, made billions in their business like Michael Dell or, you know, been a pop star or whatever. But the thing I've learned about them all is that the bigger they are, the more open to learning they are, that they will jump on it. I mean, I, I remember being just blown away one time I was down at Dell consulting with his top team and I said something just some little tip that I threw in. And man, he implemented it within 10 seconds. He didn't even stop to think about, he evaluated, would that be useful? Yes, clunk, it goes into production. (laughs) And so that's the way a genius like Michael Tell, Dell makes decisions. And I really learned a lot from that. That's one of the things where people get blocked though, right? Because so often in this commitment to learning, it means that we're going to screw up. We're going to get it wrong. Sometimes you learn through the contrast of, of getting it wrong. And to your analogy of, of, the air, of the airplane autopilot is maybe a crosswind blows in and the plane gets blown off course three degrees. With the computer on the airplane, it just autocorrects. It just moves it right back over where it needs to be. Humans have this wonderful psyche and all sorts of self-judgment. And we'll spend the next three months, six months, 30 years of our lives talking about, oh, can't believe I fell off course. You know, things were going so well. And then that one thing happened that knocked me off. But we never write the ship. And I think that that's one of the really big benefits of the book, The Genius Zone, is because it's not so much about finding your zone of genius. It's, although that's important, it's uncovering all these internal blocks that keep us from getting there or ever taking that zone of genius and making it real. So talk to me about this idea of self-criticism and the self-flagellation and the suffering that, that you say in the book that we're addicted to. How do we spot it and how do we move beyond it? The simple way to spot it is to look for lack of the feeling of a vital flow in your body. You usually notice it by when it's not there. So if you don't feel a vital flow of energy right now in your body, there's some crimp or some old program that's telling you it's not available to you. So that's your birthright, that benign flow of positive energy inside. And I use that as my barometer. If that ever goes off for a second, I look, hmm, 
what did I do there to make it go off? Because in the simplest little things like swallowing a feeling, for example, or not doing exactly what I said I was going to do, calling somebody at 1201 when I'd agreed to call them at 12 noon. You know, those little things like Tom, um, Tom, what's his name? A uh, great business consultant said, um, I remember the quote, he said, there is no such thing as a minor lapse of integrity. And uh, wherever you are, Tom, if you're still on the planet, uh, apologies for blowing your last name, but I go through a lot <laughs> of names during the course of the week. What he's saying there is we're keeping score all the time about the times we swallow our feelings or the times we shade the truth or the times we say something that's more to protect ourselves than it is to reveal the actual truth of the matter. So those things happen in human life and those crimp the flow of vital energy through our bodies. So I say, do whatever you need to do to reawaken that flow. If you're in the habit of not telling the truth, go radical, really get radical about that. That's what I did. Saved my marriage, actually. About a year into my marriage, I was still well into my defensiveness, I think. And there was this one moment where I was angry at Katie about something. And then I realized, wait a minute, my voice sounds angry, but I'm actually scared. And I just blurted out, I'm scared right now. And she just changed right away. She got out of her defensive pose and said, oh, and then we found out that we were both scared. <laughs> and so we bonded underneath that argument by dropping down to one level of feeling below where we were on the surface. And we all need to remember we're a parfait of emotions. You know, we're anger, we're sadness, we're fear, we're joy, we're sexuality. All of those things are arranged in a parfait. And sometimes if you're stuck at one of the top ones like anger, you don't get down to the deep thing that's really going on, like something you're deeply hurt about or something you're deeply scared about or something where you don't feel you're measuring up to your own expectations. And so there are deep things that need to be communicated. You know, our book, Conscious Loving, when we were first on Oprah 30 years ago, people used to get so upset in audiences when we would be on TV audiences about the whole subject of, should you even tell the truth to your beloved? There would always be somebody, I remember one person in a TV audience once, a lady standing up and saying, you know, like, I've been married to my husband for 29 years, and I've lied to him every single day, and we're still together. And the audience would go, yay! You know, and, and, uh, <laughs> Reward it! Yeah! <laughs> yeah. And uh, Katie and I would just kind of look out of the corner of our eye at each other, and like our, our, what planet are we on anyway, where people will actually clap for concealment and boo at revealing. And so that to me is stunning about our human species. That's another gene I would like to insert is the fact that revealing brings joy. Telling the truth brings excitement and joy. What I can tell you is amazing from all of those thousands of people we've seen in couples counseling, truth reawakens relationships. Uh, there are a small number of people who probably would have split up anyway, who split up after a truth is told. But I'm convinced that the vast majority benefit from it after a period of where it kind of roughens things up. Because if you've got something big, like I had an affair with your best friend seven years ago, that's going to strike on a number of different levels. And it may take a while to unwind those levels. Because what you've done with the action, even if it was a one night stand, 
is you've said, for one reason or the other, this relationship needs blowing up. And let's blow it up and see what we can produce, because the pain of being in it like this has grown too much. And so that's the point where we blow things up. And the key thing is not that you've blown it up, but how quickly you can come to learn from it. And I'm talking about boardroom situations as well as bedroom situations. There are so many boardroom situations that I've been part of straightening out that have some of the same dynamics of the bedroom situation. And so I don't even try to make much of a distinction anymore because they always have to do more with power struggles than the thing itself. So here's what we say. Money problems are never about money. Sex problems are never about sex. And problems with the kids are never about the kids. If you think about those three things and apply those to the boardroom as well as the bedroom, kids for employees, for example, you can get the same set of dynamics that goes on in both situations. It's fear-based. Sure. It's something that people are scared about. That's a key practical insight any coach can make great use of. If you realize that it's something people are scared about that hasn't been named yet, that's where us as coaches and people of goodwill in corporations and businesses can be of great service by raising those kind of questions. There's so much wisdom in there. And I just want to hit on a couple key points. How we do one thing is generally how we do all things. So when you're talking about the problems at home might also manifest in the boardroom. I think in practical terms, how that would show up for people. If you're having a hard time and in a tremendous amount of stress because you cannot control your partner or your children, that need to control that, that many of us are addicted to will show up at work and trying to control the financial market, control the employees and control a business deal. It will show up with parents, personal relationships, and, and that need to control will just cause suffering in every way, which I think is what you're getting at, right? Yes, that's a key issue to keep your eye on and broaden that in the following way too. Oftentimes the struggle can be for control and it often resembles a family dynamic of one or other, and sometimes both of the people involved. So one of my first questions is, what does this remind you of? And that often opens up the doorway to the original drama that's driving the whole thing. And it's often, depending on the size of the ego of the people in the boardroom, that's what you get paid for, frankly, is sure. wading your way through those levels of defensiveness. Everything else is like getting 10 grand handed to you on a plate at the end of the day. You know, it's that it's that getting your way through all of that stuff, you know, because you have to what I do oftentimes is name the people at the table in my mind. Oh, there's control freak boss, but there's also control freak vice president, but they're control freaks in totally different ways. Okay, where did that come from? And then, oh, here's bad kid that always causes a ruckus. Over here is obedient kid who's always trying to smooth things out. So kind of name the dynamics at the table, and you often get a way of breaking through what's on the surface. They all boil down to the same thing. And here's the key point I want to make. They're all fear-based. Sure. If you keep seeing it as something you can straighten out on the level of anger, 
You cannot. I will just tell you bluntly, because oftentimes it gets down to something that occurs in the sadness zone, something that somebody was hurt about. And it often gets down to something they're scared about. But and here's what I've found from getting down into it with a bunch of executives. They're often scared about the same thing, but they haven't named it yet. A lot of times those emotions that we're disconnecting from, you know, the anger, resentment, guilt, you know, the things that would have us go to a coping behavior, overeat, have a drink, do the drugs. Underneath that emotion, if we can sit with it, we can uncover a belief about either ourselves or the way that we believe life is. And generally, once we can name the belief, that's going to lead us to the underlying trauma or the moment in life where we created that filter of the world. Am I hearing you correctly? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Sometimes our learning of our personalities, our personas come through things we absorb around us. You know, I've had many people in here who their spouses ask them not to speak to them in a certain parental way, but they don't get it. They keep doing it over and over again. And it turns out they were so steeped in that, that that's just what they think marital partners ought to say to each other. It always ought to be critical and it ought to be the same voice as you would address a family pet. And, you know, that's just the way they think sound program is working when it comes to how to talk to a spouse. And it's often related to exactly what they heard growing up and what they saw growing up. Sometimes, though, those things are learned through traumas. You have something bad happen, you know, like you make some bad mistake and get punished for it. And, you know, I've had people remember hundreds of them, and we've all got a stack of those in us. I call it personality number one and personality number two. Personality number one is your outgoing original personality that wants to cuddle and hug and be connected to other people. And most of us that get fed in the arms of a uh, mother figure usually have that feeling of connection somewhere in us. Some of us don't and uh, need to do remedial work on that. Uh, But uh, most of us do. In the second phase of that second part of the first year of life, we want to explore. We don't want to cuddle so much anymore. We want to crawl around on the floor and we want to look back at home base and come back. And there are lots of films of crawlers. You know, they always crawl around and look at things and then they look back over their shoulder to see where their parental figure is over their shoulder. And uh, so we learn both of those things, hopefully the union and the individuation. Now, some of us have glitches that occur both in the union phase or could be in the exploration phase or both. And in other words, you could have trust issues. Something bad happens in the union phase of the first year of life. It affects your ability to take in nurturance, food nurturance. Maybe it causes you to overeat later or undereat later or something to do with your oral mechanisms, or it might affect something else. So those are the kind of things that people have documented. In the book, you talk about ordinary creativity versus true creativity. Can you share a little bit about that concept? Because I think that that really ties into what we're speaking about right now. Yes, I appreciate you highlighting that. And uh, it is central to the genius zone because so many of us are using the juice from our genius to serve other people's 
ends, whatever they may be through your job, but that's ordinary creativity. And, you know, it's a good thing and everything, but my issue with that is it's not serving your genius. And so many people are afraid to make the leap. And it's not something like you have to run off to a cave in Tibet or take a sailboat to Tahiti or anything like that and get away from the world to own your creativity. That was back in the 19th century where Paul Gauguin and those kind of people thought they had to get away from the world or use opium or things like that to kind of get hold of their creativity. No, it's as simple as asking the question and beginning to woo it. In the new book, In the Genius Zone, I talk about creativity needing to be something that you woo, like you would woo your beloved. You know, you you carry him or her a rose or you compose um, them a poem or you do something that is from your creativity. And creativity, let's pause there for a moment and just get a handle on what that is, because creativity is what has the capacity to surprise you. It's what has the capacity to delight you. So if you think of things that can delight and surprise you, well, there are wonderful things in the material world, like your beloved and your family coming in on your birthday, holding a cupcake with one candle, flaming, singing happy birthday at their top of their lungs. I mean, that would be a source of joy for a family person, you know? Or imagine another person who likes stuff, you know, opening up and there's a jewel, a piece of jewelry that brings delight and surprise to them. But I see we have the capacity to discover our own diamonds all the time and mine them if we can start inviting and wooing our creativity. And so it's a lot about the attitude you take to it. So most of us, is it fair to say that we're not operating from creativity, we're operating from consumption. This idea of looking for things that, that, that delight us, that light us up, we're looking for it externally in the next house, in the piece of jewelry, in the next relationship, while we're completely ignoring the things that will bring the lasting delight, which would be a reconnection to self and to our gifts. You know, that uh, evokes another memory of a life-changing moment I had when I was in high school. We went to a special youth day at the church, the Methodist church that I was a member of, and it was a special, you know, like Florida-wide youth day, and they brought in this special speaker. He did this amazing speech, and the one thing that just blew my mind, he said, you know, you're all young people, and you're about to go forth into the world and take over the world and do your own thing, and he said, be very wary of falling into the trap of consumption. He said, mm -hmm. people are going to sell you the next refrigerator and they're going to want you to live in the right house and buy the right car and have the right job. And he said, you know, do that, but also have an eye on, am I sacrificing myself, my principles or my spirit in order to do that? And I remember just, hey, wait a minute, this guy's speaking a foreign language here, you know, pay attention, folks. And um, I felt like I was the only one that I was, uh, he was speaking to there. And so um, my girlfriend and I at the time were just kind of looking at each other and said, are we hearing this in Central Florida in, you know, the year of 1961? So, um, but I've really based my life on that. I mean, I have stuff now, I have a great house and all that kind of stuff now, but I sort of backed into it in a way because I made this deal with the universe. And then Katie and I made a deal with the universe together. And my deal with the universe was I 
ask the universe to provide me with experiences that would bring forth my genius. And in return for that, I would do everything possible to make contributions that made the world a better place. And so that was my deal. And boy, has that come true. I mean, just one thing after the other. Um, you know, how did Oprah find the two people that were working with six couples in our living room at the time? You know, those sure. kind of weirdnesses happen. And so um, I think that uh, Choyam Trungpa, Tibetan Buddhist, uh, said it well. He was a humble monk from a Tibetan tradition, and he founded a monastery with no money, and they're struggling along. And then one of his people gave them a check for a million dollars. And it was a big deal at the time. Choyam Trungpa said, if you work passionately with dedication, such auspicious coincidences are bound to happen. The way he put it even, to be even saying that in English, being that he was a native speaker of Tibetan, just blew me away because what he's saying there is you move into a new field, a way of being where don't, things don't have to take time to occur. The focus is on your passionate dedication to, in our case, genius, that's what I'm recommending, to our own genius and to its bringing forth, to wooing it. That's our passionate dedication. And then the big benefits of life just kind of fall all over themselves happening to you. And the difference being that when we talk about working with this focus and passion, it's to the things in our zone of genius as to where most people are focused working with passion toward the things that help them survive or the things that help them climb the corporate ladder, but lack the internal connection to their purpose, their soul, their calling, whatever force you want to refer to that as, correct? Well, you know, in The Big Leap, I make a distinction about those four zones, the zone of incompetence, where you're doing stuff you're not very congenitally suited to do. You don't like to do it, um, but people persist. And then there's the zone of competence where you're doing stuff that you're good at, but somebody else could do it just as well. That's where you got to delegate. You got to learn to delegate there and to get out of the zone of competence. The third zone where most people land, you know, most people that listen to these kind of podcasts and things like that, that land in the zone of excellence and where you are there, people are patting you on the back for it. You're making money doing it and you're pleasing people doing it. And the problem becomes for gifted people is that it becomes a trap and it becomes something that drains your energy that needs to be cherished, first of all, and explored through your genius. And there is no other way to do it, really, that I have found on planet Earth, that there is a certain person, and you're probably one of them if you're listening to this or watching this, uh, that you like learning and you like the process of revealing new things about yourself and the world all the time. That's a great way to be. Blessings upon you for being that way. Take a big breath of ah, appreciation for that. And so what you're bound for is that genius zone. And in the book, I give you some precise instructions for how to put yourself there and stay there. Because, you know, getting into your genius zone is one thing, but then learning to be there over a period of time is something that requires a little bit of fine tuning. You know, that's, uh, that's why they let birds hang around the nest for a while before they kick them out is, you know, they're kind of getting things worked out there so that they can operate their equipment properly. 
And many of us have been doing a pretty good job of excellence navigating with our wings. But if we could just make a little shift and open up to our genius zone and learn to steer ourselves in a more subtle manner, then we're landing in a place every day that's genuinely nurturing to human beings. Mm. That zone nurtures us. We want to get that nurturing. And I really want you to make your life about nurturing yourself in a constant benign inquiry about wooing forth your genius. And this was one of my big takeaways from the book. At the end of the day, life is about energy, right? Like we just, that's all we have is our energy. And energy just isn't how we feel when we get up in the day. Like every thought that we have is a unit of energy. Mm-hmm. And most of us, and I think that this is, you know, maybe what you can speak to is we don't use our thoughts in a way that focuses us on what will move us forward in the present. We're living in the past or we're catastrophizing or worrying about the future, mm-hmm. or we're just investing our energy in those other zones of competence, excellence, making money for the man, making a dollar for corporate America, but not really investing in those things that are going to bring our most vibrant full life, right? Those are, are, are those the two detours, like negative thinking And then wasting time with the life we were conditioned to want rather than the one that's authentic to who we are? Well, I think the negative thinking and the upper limit problem kind of go hand in hand there because a lot of us are operating out of limiting beliefs. Like, I can't let my light really shine because if I did, it would take love away from other people who need it more than I. You know, it's kind of uh, not willing to let it all through for fear it might have some effect on others. So a lot of us come out of that, what I call the fear of outshining. A lot of us come out of a fear that's crimped on by a negative belief, an upper limit problem that's about, I'm fundamentally unworthy. I was born a certain way or raised a certain way, or I've been limited in a certain way that I'm fundamentally unworthy of life's good things. And the negative belief is I can't have all the love in the world or I can't have love without suffering. Those kinds of things get a grip on us unconsciously at a fairly early age. And life is a lot about awakening to the limiting beliefs that we put on ourselves. You know, like uh, I was born with a medical condition. I had one of those I write about in one of my books about I was uh, by the end of my first year of life, I was one of those very fat children. And uh, I was taken around to lots of medical specialists growing up. And at one point when I was in the ninth grade, I was put on this regimen of amphetamines for a year. And I made straight A's that year because I couldn't sleep. You know? Sure. <laughs> I'm up till two o'clock in the morning with my heart pounding, working out algebra. And, um, you know, my teacher thinks, gosh, I got a Nobel Prize winner there. You know, as um, soon as the amphetamines were taken away, thump, you know, I go back to B's and C's as a sophomore. Um, But I never really handled the problem until I was was in my 20s. I was 24. And I realized I had a moment of realizing that I was and I wasn't my body at the same time. I had been taking my body, my 300 pound body, by the way, I weigh about 180. Now I'm six feet tall. uh, So I look athletic. Um, but at the time I looked very pear-shaped and 
so uh, that was 130, 40 pounds ago. And so that year I shed that hundred and some pounds by having this one realization that inside me, way down at the center of everything is this thing I call pure consciousness that doesn't have any programming on it. And if we can fully own and woo that forth as the background of all of our life, however you do it with meditation or just pure focusing on it, but if you can bring that forth, then all the other issues begin to kind of melt and fall away. You know, like once I had that on the line, so to speak, I could eat in a different way. I started asking, okay, is this food I'm eating feeding that pure consciousness bringing forth or is it quieting? Is it pushing it back in the hole? Wow. About 98% of my diet, cheeseburgers, vanilla malts, French fries, that was really squelching that life energy inside that I think we all need to cultivate. So it took me about a year and something to shed a hundred and some pounds. And, but um, I've always been able to keep it off uh, by focusing on what will nurture that pure consciousness inside or what will shadow it, what will put it back in the hole again. What do you use to nurture that? Because I think that that's a great tip. Somebody listening today is like, yeah, I'd love to woo my consciousness. What do I do? Do I go on 1-800-Flowers.com and send myself (laughs) roses? You mentioned a meditation. Is that the tool for you? Oh, yes. Um, I have some meditations in the new book, um, in in the Genius Zone. And also, the book comes out June 29th. And uh, when, wherever you, whenever you order it, whether you pre-order it or order it afterwards, if you order it through GeniusZoneBook.com, there's all the different places to order it. But you can get a free audio meditation mm. of me taking you through the five key affirmations that are central to the book. And so it's a good thing. You can kind of take yourself through it as many times as you want, you know, just to kind of get that in your mind as a little 15 minute guided meditation. So it's very convenient and easy to do. I know some people learn by listening more than they do by reading. So that's why I wanted to give away this free uh, audio thing when you buy the book through that zone. But anyway, um, yeah, it's about opening up space in a very fundamental way. And many of us don't have the skill of opening up more spaciousness in ourselves. Don't even we don't have the that, bandwidth, right? Don't like have the it, bandwidth. Yeah. yeah. And because if you've only been listening to 105 Alive Thunder Machine on the heavy metal channel, you may not realize that there's the uh, dreamy New Age music channel one notch over. As Walt Whitman said in his beautiful poem, I am large and contain multitudes. And we all need to anchor and open and reside within that largeness of of the vast space of ourselves, that pure consciousness, and realize that our emotions are just resting in that. That helps us keeping from having one or the other of our emotions getting a grip on us and sending us roaring down some (laughs) path that has all sorts of karmic consequences to it, having done so myself on a number of occasions. Uh, But meditation, for sure. Here's my day. I wake up, I'm an early riser, and uh, uh, usually thanks to my two cats, Greta and Allie, I'm on my feet for about uh, by about 4.30 in the morning. I go to sleep around 10 o'clock, so I like about six, six and a half hours sleep. So um, I get up and uh, after I've fed them and done various things, I sit down and I always start with meditation 
And I'm an old time TMer. I've been doing TM now for almost 50 years. Uh, transcendental meditation. So transcendental, for people who don't know. Transcendental yeah. meditation, uh, which is a mantra based meditation. And I'm on my third or fourth advanced technique of that, but it's basically the same kind of a thing. It's a mantra meditation and really useful. And it's a place of kind of anchoring in that pure consciousness for, you know, 20 minutes or so. And then just, I go right into my writing from there. And so I write for the next couple of hours until my wife wakes up. She's usually waking up around seven 30 or quarter of eight. And um, so I use that as my uh, creative buzz time. And then after that, we hang out and uh, I don't attempt to do any real creative work. I send emails and do what I'm doing right now. Most of the time uh, I'm kind of living on zoom these days and on podcasts, uh, getting my new book out into the world and having a lot of fun doing it. It's so great. At the end of the day that this is, as we create that mental bandwidth, as we can condition ourselves and you have a great, you talk about this, uh, uh, the genius movement, a process that you take people through when we are feeling emotionally activated, when we're angry, when we're sad, when we're resentful, there's a series of questions, right? What am I trying to control right now that is out of my control? The second question being, what is in my control right now? And then the third one being, what is the next right action that I can take that will move me in the direction or get the outcome that I want. I'm paraphrasing, but is, is that a good summary of the genius movements and, and one of the ways that we can refocus our energy toward the outcomes that we want? Yes, that's an excellent way to do it. I took the book from transcripts of things I'd done over and over again with clients. And uh, so it's very real life. It's, uh, it's something I want people to interact with. And so what I'm recommending with the Genius Zone is that people really make a commitment to sitting down with it for an hour. There's 168 of them in the week. You know, just sit down and immerse yourself for an hour. That's all it'll take you. It's not a huge book. Uh, there's lots of other stuff in it, like a discussion guide and things that uh, maybe look a little bigger, but the real heart and soul of it, you could probably do it in an hour or two. So anyway, I just want people to get into the experience of it. And at the end of the day, and I, I guess we can wrap up here, you know, a lot of clients who come to me, and maybe you've seen this in your practice, when they're first starting this path, the word that people usually, and I've heard even Oprah say this before, that everybody at the end of the day wants freedom. It's usually my experience when I work with new clients. And if I think on my own journey, it's a great word. It sounds great, but most of us don't know what that means for us. We think of freedom as being is moving away from an undesirable result. We think we'll be free when we get out of the soul-sucking corporate job. We think we'll be free when we're out of the bad relationship. Yet for many people, they never really lock in on what they want to move toward. Is at the end of the day, what we're all looking for, our own creativity and our own self-expression? Yes. And I have a metaphor for that, that your breath, there's an in-breath, comes all the way in, and an out breath that goes all the way out. And if you're only taking a small, <sighs> you know, you're not using the fullness of it. And one is about experience and the other is about expression. How much can I be on that in breath? How much can I feel? And on the expression, how much of that out breath can I take? How much of that 
fullness of myself can I express in the world? See, because I think we touched on this at the beginning, a good place to close is that life is about finding out what you have to most contribute and bringing out that into the world in a way that inspires other people and empowers other people to do the same thing. Well, a great place for the person who might be uh, wasting their time in the zone of competence or simply the zone of excellence who really wants to move into that next level would be to pick up the book, The Genius Zone. It's available June 29th. Uh, are they, I'm assuming they can buy that on your website. They can get it on Amazon, all the retailers. Yes, all the retailers are at GeniusZoneBook.com. GeniusZoneBook.com. That's where you can buy it from wherever you like to buy books. And also get that audio meditation that I was talking about, that 15-minute one about the key affirmations. Is there anything here, Gabe, that we haven't covered? Is there any final words that you'd like to leave the audience with today? I always like to begin and end with appreciation. So I appreciate you for living in your genius zone. And I appreciate the people who are listening to this and being with this information. I really, uh, the purpose of my life is to expand and love abundance and creativity every day as I inspire other people to do the same. And so if you're doing that, you're a friend of mine and blessings upon you. Thank you so much. It was really an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much. If you're looking to get your copy of The Genius Zone, you can go to the link in the show notes. And while you're there, you can also find a link to my website. If you really want to fast track your success, get out of that life that you were expected to want and live the career in life that's truly aligned with your true creativity, I've got you. CreativeSoulCoaching.net. You can find info there on my group programs and my one-on-one coaching programs. I've helped clients across 17 countries make that transition, and I would love to help you be the next success story. In the meantime, would love to know your aha moments and your takeaways from this interview. Uh, Screenshot the podcast. Upload it to your Instagram stories. Be sure to tag me at CSC Dan Mason. Let me know what was most impactful for you. And if you're brand new to the podcast and you love what you're hearing, give us a follow here on whatever platform that you're listening on. In the meantime, turn down the volume on your negativity, turn up the volume on your purpose so you can live life amplified. I love you. I'll talk to you next week.